Good morning, everyone. Let's echo the words of that song with, uh, uh, with a time of prayer before we begin. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now as we open your word. May your spirit humble our hearts. May you illuminate our minds to understand these truths that we read and the wonders that we see in this passage. May you convict us where we need convicting. May you encourage us where we need encouragement. And may you be glorified through our time together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. And we're going to begin our time together by reading verses 20 to 35. Then he went home, as Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when he heard his, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, in this section of scripture, we see various responses to Jesus. Two weeks ago, when we were looking at this passage, we specifically uh, saw the response of the scribes. Uh, They knew who Jesus was. They understood what he was doing and instead of responding to him with submission, they tried to discredit him by claiming that he was in league with Satan. Uh, This brought about a scathing rebuke from Jesus and attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the devil, these men were committing the unforgivable sin, which is truly significant considering that Jesus declared all other sin could be forgiven. There's a lot of blaspheming of Christ that goes on in our world today, but the majority of this is out of ignorance. Even the Apostle Paul could write in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, if ignorance is not repented of, it's still going to lead a person straight to hell. However, this is something altogether different from what the scribes were doing. The scribes knew Jesus was from God, and they intentionally said he was of the devil. 
But the sin of ignorance is what Jesus' family were guilty of when they tried to seize him, thinking Jesus was out of his mind. They did not believe him, and that was a problem. That's the problem that all people face who remain outside of union with Christ. It was a problem we faced before, by God's grace, he brought us to himself. Now, when we say it's a sin of ignorance, it doesn't mean that it's still not rebellion against God. All sin is lawlessness, and all sinners are enemies against God. But again, this is not the same as purposefully equating the Holy Spirit's work to that of the devil's. If you are disparaging the one whose job it is to give testimony to Christ, then you have shut the door to the only means of forgiveness. Well, Jesus' family are introduced in verse 21, and then they're reintroduced in verse 31 after the interlude with the scribes. And it's a technique that Mark uses several times in his writing, and it's technically known as the Markan sandwich, showing that all these events are to be understood together. Now, Matthew tells us that the conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees went somewhat further than Mark records. In Matthew chapter 12, there are another 13 verses of Jesus condemning their actions uh, before he responds to the visit of his family. One of the things Jesus says to the religious leaders that Matthew records is that they will be given the sign of the prophet Jonah. And in this, he prophesied about his death and resurrection. I mention this now because on Palm Sunday we'll specifically deal with that text. Meanwhile, Mark has simply felt he's said enough to illustrate the callousness of the religious leaders. So now we come this morning to focus on the discussion that takes place concerning Jesus' family. It's an important text because it gets to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It gets to the heart of Christian discipleship. So today's sermon is entitled The Spiritual Family of Christ because in Mark 3, verses 31 to 35, which is our focus this morning, we'll see the clarity Jesus expresses regarding how sinners may be united to the Holy One of God. The first thing we see in this text is an admonishment. Jesus admonishes his earthly family. Jesus had several younger half-brothers and half-sisters, siblings who were born to Mary and her husband Joseph. Um, Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, they did not think he was the Messiah. John 7 verse 5 says straightforwardly, not even his brothers believed in him. And here in Mark 3, his whole family thinks he was out of his mind. It's not clear whether we should include Mary as thinking Jesus That was out of his mind. I'm inclined to think that given the wider testimony of scripture concerning Mary's faithfulness, that she was not thinking that, uh, but was simply concerned for the welfare of Jesus and so accompanied the rest of her children. However, we are not required to think that she was sinless, so it is possible. In this moment, though, Jesus was offering a rebuke to his earthly family so that they would recognise the need for their own belief in him as well. Being Jesus' half-brothers did not bring any special privilege that removed the need for faith. They too needed to come to see Jesus as Lord and Saviour. They had come to seize him, to take possession of him. But they needed to realise that to be truly counted as Christ's brother, they would need to submit to him in faith. 
If we offer a parallel today, being associated with a local Bible-believing church does not ensure that one belongs to Christ. Just because others personally know Jesus, that does not mean you can ride on their coattails. Jesus' own earthly family had no privileges. What makes you think that you will gain any privileges either? They failed at that point because they were not listening to what Jesus was saying about himself. Beg you not to make that same mistake for yourself. Instead, let us follow the example of those Jesus does call his family. And here's the second thing we see in this passage. It's an affirmation. Jesus affirms his spiritual family. Jesus' physical family is outside calling him, wanting to take their crazy older brother home. But inside, Jesus looks at the people sitting before him and says, this is my family. What's the difference? Well, clearly, to be part of Jesus' family is to be someone eager to sit at his feet and listen to what he says. Jesus' physical family were wanting to silence him, while those inside were seeking to submit to him. Scripture tells us that by God's grace, many of his brothers and sisters did come to believe in him. His brothers James and Jude are having integral roles in the early church. These physical brothers and sisters of Christ became spiritual brothers and sisters through faith in Christ. Here's a a visual aid for us as we contemplate our own standing before Christ. Are we submissive to his every word or are we seeking to silence him? But Jesus doesn't merely leave us to ponder the reactions of the people to wonder how he expects people to respond. So the third thing we see in the text is an announcement. When Jesus announces the means of entering his spiritual family. Verse 35. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now let's ask first up, are there any distinctions set in place that would discount certain types of people from becoming members of Jesus' spiritual family? Are there any limitations here placed on age or ethnicity, gender, finance, social standing, personality? There's nothing of the sort, is there? Jesus begins by saying, for whoever... And it echoes what we read in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. No group of people is beyond salvation. And that's crucial for us to recognise. But while no one is considered ineligible based on who they are, there, there is one condition that people must meet if they wish to be part of Jesus' family. They must do the will of God. Now, what does it mean to do the will of God? If this is the means of becoming a member of Jesus' spiritual family, then we want to make sure we understand him correctly. Get this wrong and we'll end up missing out. And we don't want that. So let's think about this for a moment. Jesus was speaking to Jews. These were people who had been given the revealed will of God in the writings of the Old Testament, which at that time was simply known as the Scriptures because there was no New Testament. The Old Testament puts forth two important things. First, 
The Old Testament explains just how far short of the glory of God sinful man has fallen. The recalling of people's constant failures to obey God are aimed at bringing people to an end of themselves. Brings people to the point of understanding that the only way to be saved is to call out for God's mercy. That's what the Jews missed when they read the scriptures. They falsely believed they could follow God's law and earn their standing before him. But the law, when correctly understood, simply shone a light on their inability to do anything about their situation. To do God's will is thus to relinquish our efforts to earn a right standing before him because it is never going to happen in our own strength. And yet, secondly, the Old Testament is a book of promise. Because when understood correctly, it not only points out people's need of salvation, but promises that God will bring a saviour. For those living before Christ, it meant trusting in the promises of God and what he would do. But now that Christ has arrived, it means trusting in him. To do the will of God is to trust in the saviour that God has sent means to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. It means to listen to Jesus' words and follow him. Listen again to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Later in John 17, Jesus prayed this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To have eternal life is to know Jesus. If you are still relying upon your own ability to stand before God, then I call upon you today to dispense with that foolishness and come to the Saviour. So many people think that God will accept them because they've lived a good life, because they aren't as bad as the person next to them, or whatever reasons they conjure up to justify why God should be happy to have them in his presence. And that's to misunderstand the infinite holiness of God and the infinite sinfulness of man. Now, we must delve even further into the matter of doing the will of God because many people also think that making a profession of faith in Christ is all that it involves. Once that's done, once those magic words have been uttered, you're covered for life, so you can just go on your merry way. But Jesus shows that's simply not true. Matthew 7.21, Jesus declared, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It means nothing to call Jesus Lord if we fail to live under his lordship. The end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the illustration of the wise and foolish builders. He says in verse 24, chapter 7, verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man 
who built his house on the sand. When Jesus was later transfigured, showing his true glory to some of his disciples, the Father spoke from out of the cloud, declaring, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. It's Mark 9, verse 7. In Matthew 28, Jesus says that the church's mission is to go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching people to observe the scriptures is often met nowadays with a sense of disdain. People don't think that's the role of preachers anymore, certainly not the role of the church. Last month, uh, Albert Moeller, some of you might know that name, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in the US, well-known evangelical. He wrote an article entitled, To Be Cool or To Be a Church? That is the question. He was responding to a situation in which churches were being ambiguous on their stance regarding LGBT issues in order that they could maintain acceptance by the culture. He said this, and I quote, Discipleship to Christ makes objective demands on conduct, virtue and morality. God revealed in Holy Scripture his commands to his people and God calls his children to live in obedience to his commands and statutes. Moreover, as the Apostle John wrote, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Where you find a church, you find a community of believers striving for holy obedience to God. Conversely, a church that doesn't tell people how to live in obedience to Christ isn't a church at all. End quote. Now he can make such a statement because the scriptures make clear the need for obedience to God's word. He didn't pull that from nowhere. Luke 11, verses 27 to 28. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you were nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 John, chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, the apostle said this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word... In him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Now we could go on and on, but the point is clear. To do the will of God is to trust in Christ, listen to his words and obey his words. And that doesn't simply mean the red letters, but all his words for all scripture is breathed out by God. Now how have we missed this in churches today? Many affirm what the Bible teaches about salvation being by grace alone but and fail to understand the Bible's teaching that a, a sinner saved by grace is then empowered by grace to live for Christ. We've talked about carnal Christianity, that movement that came out of the 80s which people taught that you could be saved by Christ but didn't have to come under his lordship till much later, if at all. 
But if a person is not living for Christ, then there is no reason to think they have been saved by Christ. How did we get here? I think part of the reason is what Albert Moller has spoken of in other places, where he's uh, given a distinction between thick Christianity and thin Christianity. The 1970s, 1980s, with the rise of the church growth movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, uh, these things proposed that the world was not interested in Bible exposition, that it was just going to bore people, and so it would need to be gotten rid of. And what was it replaced with? Well, going and finding out sinners' needs and then preaching pithy, practical, superficial talks in order to church the unchurched. But that way of thinking captured the minds of Christians and the result... And you can read about this in many places, is that the last 40 years or so, there is a, a dearth of understanding regarding the truths of Scripture. When you go back to the 17th century, for instance, and the great confessions of faith that came out of that era, uh, there was the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, that the Presbyterians put out. Then there was the Second London Baptist Confession, which is essentially the Westminster uh, but with an affirmation of believers' baptism and not infant baptism. Baptists wanted to show their affinity with their Presbyterian brothers on every other bit of doctrine except a few secondary issues. Well, if you've read them, you'll know that they're over 30 pages long. But you look at a lot of churches today, and if they have a statement of faith at all, most simply have a purpose statement, you could fit most of that information on the back of a postcard. We've moved, and we need to understand this, we've moved from a thick, robust Christianity to an era of thin Christianity. That's what the writer of Hebrews was lamenting. We talked about this the other week. What the writer of Hebrews was lamenting when he spoke of his brothers and sisters in Christ not wanting to move beyond milk to solid food, not wanting to move beyond basics and into maturity in the faith. But remember why he was lamenting this. Because he knew that if they weren't moving forward, growing to a mature understanding of Christ, then they would move backwards and right out of the faith. And his warning served as a means of keeping true Christians in the faith. That was his great concern. So lack of desire to study the scriptures in depth means that we miss a whole lot. And in particular, we miss the clear teaching that believers are to listen to Christ and obey his words. But the overall reason for this, and we should not miss this, the overall reason for obeying Christ is that God's purpose for his people is to conform them to the image of Christ. He has graciously saved us to make us like Christ. In Colossians 1.28, Paul states his pastoral mission. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. In Galatians 4.19, Paul addresses the believers saying, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In Romans 8, 28 to 30, Paul also tells us, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those who trust in Christ are placed on the pathway to final glorification with Christ. As Philippians 1.6 tells us, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. It's a giant contradiction if believers spend their lives in disobedience to Christ. But if that's the case, then it's simply a sign that they have not been placed on that pathway to begin with. Now, picking up on what Paul says here in Romans, we're reminded that while people are accountable for how they respond to the gospel of Christ, nevertheless, it's only by the sovereign grace of God that sinners are enabled to do the will of God. Without the regenerating work of the Spirit, sinners would never choose to follow God's will. Now, of course, they're always free to do what they desire, but their wills are complete opposite to everything God wants. Their wills are in bondage to sin and so they always desire to rebel against God. They're free to do what they will, but they always will to do against God. Only by God's grace are sinners' eyes open that they can believe in Christ and obey Christ and to be grown to maturity in Christ. As Jesus himself declared in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Do you know that truth is to drive each person to their knees, repenting of their sin and calling on the mercy of God. A sinner's only hope is to trust in Christ Jesus, but it's only by God's mercy that they're enabled to do so. The gospel of Jesus Christ devastates any sense of human capability and calls people to rely on God's grace. And so we preach the gospel to all, trusting that God will save his people by enabling them to do his will. And as Jesus says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What a glorious truth that is. For the last few minutes, let me highlight one further heading that springs from this text, and that is an acknowledgement. Jesus acknowledges the difficulties his spiritual family will face. And there's three aspects here. The first of which is an acknowledgement of persecution from outside of the church. The different responses to Christ show that this is the case. The religious leaders are saying Jesus is of the devil. His own family is saying he's lost his mind. Why should it be any different for those who belong to Christ? As we've seen earlier this morning, there are are many who are trying to accommodate to the culture in order to win the culture. They'll dull down doctrine so as not to be considered offensive. But while we should never aim to be offensive in the way we present the gospel, the gospel in and of itself is offensive. Paul says in Galatians 5 of the offence of the cross. And having been saved by the gospel, believers now belong to Christ and are no longer part of the world. We're sent back into the world, but we're no longer part of the world. Which means that the world will hate us too. And we shouldn't be surprised by this as if it's something strange. The persecution can be intensely personal as well. Sometimes coming from the closest quarters of family. In Matthew 10, 
verses 21 to 22, Jesus speaks of the reality that brother will deliver brother over to death and the father is child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You think of the stories coming out of the the SIM mission in Galmi in recent weeks where in turning to Christ some new believers have been abandoned by their families. The reactions of those to Jesus in Mark 3 remind us that we need to be ready to count the cost. As Jesus also says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. However difficult that may be at times, we can never allow the feelings of our family and those closest to us or even our own desires to override our response to Christ. So there's persecution from outside the church. The second difficulty Jesus acknowledges is the pollution within the church, within the local church. When Jesus says that those who do the will of God are his brothers and sisters, the flip side of that is clearly that those who do not do the will of God are not part of his spiritual family. That seems simple, right? But it's complicated by Jesus' parable of the sower that we read at the beginning of Mark 4. There Jesus speaks of a farmer who threw seed, some landing on the path, some on the rocky ground, some among the thorns and some on good soil. It's an illustration of the different ways in which people respond to the gospel. But it's not describing four types of Christians. Only the seed landing in the good soil is a picture of a genuine response to the gospel. Those who truly seek to do the will of God will produce good fruits over time. It's not surprising then that Jesus gives this teaching immediately after all the various responses to him that we read at the end of chapter 3. Jesus says that a lot of people may give the impression they have responded to the gospel. That's a problem the church must face because only God knows what is happening in a person's heart. All that we can see is the external works which serve as testimony. But this is the reason why at a later stage of his ministry, Jesus outlined the process of church discipline, which we find in Matthew 18. If people within the church are acting in sin, then church discipline will act to bring true believers to a state of repentance. It's an act of love to bring them to repentance. For others who refuse to repent, they are removed from the church altogether, says Jesus. Because the church, as the bride of Christ, is to visually demonstrate the holiness of God. As well as this, Jesus and many other New Testament writers warn that false teachers will arise from within the church and that those doing the will of God should be extremely wary of them lest they themselves be deceived. Listen to the Apostle John. 2 John, verses 9 to 11. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now that's coming from the apostle of love. And it's crystal clear, right? 
Nothing ambiguous about that. Unfortunately, the stark reality of John's words here are often misunderstood when we think about unity. We forget what Paul says in Galatians 5, 9, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That a little false teaching spreads like yeast in a batch of dough. And it's a lesson the church has had to keep learning repeatedly. Let me give you one of the most famous examples. In March 1887, the Prince of Preachers, the great English Baptist pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he began what came to be known as the downgrade controversy. He published a series of articles that warned of dangerous trends that were arising in the evangelical churches of that day. He was very perceptive to point out that once a church puts its foot on the downgrade, it will soon find it going further than it ever intended. It's what we would call today the slippery slope argument. What Spurgeon saw uh, was the churches denying the great doctrines of the Bible that they once held so dear, and they were placing solid expository preaching for all sorts of other shenanigans and party games that he described them as in order to draw more people in. Churches becoming more like theatres than the sanctuary of God. In the third article that he wrote, dated August 1897, Spurgeon said this, I quote, It now becomes a serious question how far those who abide by the faith once delivered to the saints should fraternise with those who have turned aside to another gospel. Christian love has its claims, and divisions are to be shunned as grievous evils. But how far are we justified in being in confederacy with those who are departing from the truth? It's a difficult question to answer so as to keep the balance of the duties. For the present, it behooves believers to be cautious, lest they lend their support and countenance to the betrayers of the Lord. It's one thing to overleap all boundaries of denominational restriction for truth's sake. This we hope all godly men will do more and more. It's quite another policy which would urge us to subordinate the maintenance of truth to denominational prosperity and unity. Numbers of easy-minded people wink at error, so long as it is committed by a clever man and a good-natured brother who has so many fine points about him. Let each believer judge for himself, but for our part, we have put on a few fresh bolts to our door, and we have given orders to keep the chain up. For, under colour of begging the friendship of the servant, there are those about who aim at robbing the master." End quote. Spurgeon was saying that unity is a precious, precious thing. But this unity must be in biblical truth. And there were those claiming to be Christian churches who were clearly opposing the will of God. Now, he could see this everywhere he looked, but his major concern was within his own denomination. Unfortunately, despite his pleas for the matter to be addressed, it fell on deaf ears. And so on October 28, 1887, Spurgeon wrote to the English Baptist Union announcing his immediate withdrawal. Now in January the following year, 1888, the Baptist Union Council met and voted to accept Spurgeon's withdrawal. But the immediate next thing on the agenda was to censure Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon led the biggest Baptist church in England at the time. He was one of the most respected and revered figures in the church of that day. 
but only five men out of almost a hundred voted against the censure. Spurgeon died in January 1892 at the age of 57 and those last few years were painful knowing that many friends, colleagues and students had turned against him but he never regretted his stand for the truth. He knew that those who did the will of God belonged to Christ. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. And he was willing to protect his flock from those who did otherwise, regardless of the personal cost to himself. The spiritual family of Christ is going to face this battle in every era until Christ returns. And so may we be found faithful to Christ in the battles that befall us. But let's not end on that. Because there's a third aspect we also need to draw out of this passage. And this is what we'll finish on. While Jesus acknowledges persecution, pollution as as things that churches need to be aware of, he also has a tremendous promise. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Despite the difficulties we face in this life, as tough as they may be, we have the promise that in following the will of God, we are counted as members of Christ's spiritual family. And no difficulty could ever separate a believer from Christ. In John 10, 27 to 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. But one of the amazing blessings of having Christ as our brother is that we gain other brothers and sisters who are also in Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 10, 29 to 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So when God saves us, he saves us into the body of Christ. This may cost us our biological family, but we then gain a spiritual family united together in the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. A wonder that we will experience for all eternity. Jesus declared, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let me close with the prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3. It's a prayer for spiritual strength that believers may continue to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to do the will of God. Let these words be my prayer for us this morning. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.